Dear family members and friends of First Lutheran Church, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ, who is the light of the world. Amen. I'll never forget the first time I saw it. It was in the late fall, 1997. My friend, Pastor Jeff Johnson, was showing me through the new campus ministry center at NAU in Flagstaff, Arizona. As we came into the chapel, I was stopped short, for there on the altar sat one of the most shocking things I'd ever seen. Breaking the darkness was the flickering flame of a tall white candle, very similar to what you see at the font this morning. It was surrounded by rings of rusted, barbed wire. What is that? I asked Jeff, whispering, thinking perhaps it had something to do with a prison ministry he was involved in. Well, gently touching the barbs, he answered, it's a symbol I came across that profoundly speaks to me. For you see, the light of Christ has already come. It has already come into the world, yet there's still work to be done. That is to carry Christ's redeeming light of forgiveness and hope into the darkest places where people are bound by the barbed wire of sin and death. Today, as you can see, there's not any barbed wire wrapped around these candles on our Advent wreath. But in their own way, they remind us of the same thing. There are four of them, one for each Sunday prior to Christmas. With one candle now lit, they tell us when our new church year of Advent begins. You see, as Christ's church, we're on a different timetable than the rest of the world. There are plenty of calendars that shape our lives, school calendars, fiscal calendars, national calendars, all of them with their own concerns, their own values. But the calendar of the Christian church focuses on the life of Christ, who is the light of the world, and what His life and light tells us about our life in God. So pause with me a moment and consider this question. Have you ever noticed or thought about how our new church year of Advent begins in darkness? From midsummer on, the days get shorter as the earth spins in its annual Newtonian ellipse. And with the end of the daylight savings time in October, we fall back and nighttime takes over. Then it begins to get dark by five, and we fumble even more so now to find those darn keys for the car as we make our way out into the pitch darkness of the parking lot after work. And finally, by the time the earth rounds the bend with the advent of the winter solstice on December 21st, it's the shortest day of the year. One thing Advent tells us is that people of faith know it will get darker 
before it gets light. That's in part what our calendar teaches us beginning when it does. Week by week, we will light new candles on this Advent wreath, but even as we light them, the darkness will increase. We also know that the sun will come back, as Elias has just shared with us. Just like we know that God will be born in a manger in Bethlehem. These are the tenets of our Christian faith. But so is waiting in the dark. Anyone who's ever longed for morning knows this kind of feeling. The psalmist says it well with pathos. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Yes, morning will come, but it will not be rushed. You can set your clocks back or you can set them forward in trying to control time, or you can count to 60 a hundred times, but it's not going to change a thing. Night creatures will stir in the unraked leaves under your bedroom window still, as with mine last night. Your heart will beat in your ears like a drum. Morning will come, but it will not be rushed. And so Jesus assures us again this day to watch, to wait without losing hope. My friends, this word of hope is at the very heart, the center of Jesus' message, his gospel word for his disciples and us. In our gospel text for today from the 13th chapter of Mark, there were four of them who were first lit up, if you will, by these words, like these four Advent candles, Peter, James, John, Andrew. They were the inner circle who'd soon start spreading the light of Christ's gospel word out against the barbed wires of sin and death, of darkness in our world. They'd followed Jesus for three years and were now in the Mount of Olives. There they sat waiting upon Jesus' word, looking across the Kidred Valley at the great walls of Jerusalem, the temple crowning its highest point. It's then that Jesus tells them that the whole world would soon come tumbling down. And they wanted Jesus to tell them when. How would they know when the center of their universe was going to blow up? That's when Jesus tells them about the stars falling from the sky, like old silver stickers from a blackboard, how the sun would be erased, the moon scuffed out before they saw the Son of God coming in power and glory and ushering in the kingdom of God. Unlike an Edgar Allan Poe or a Stephen King, Jesus did not say this to scare them, but to comfort them. For they needed to know that even something as frightening as the end of the world was in God's good hands. In her recent New York Times bestseller, Learning to Walk in the Dark, 
Barbara Brown Taylor, who did some growing up right in the cathedral district here, witnesses. When the cosmos collapses and every light in the sky is put out, we are to remember what Jesus has told us. We're to remember that God is sovereign over darkness as well as light, and we are to keep watch even in the darkness for his coming to us in the clouds. And so, by the end, by the time that St. Mark wrote his account of the gospel, some 30 years after Jesus' ascension back into heaven, it seemed to the early church that the end was very near. The stars were still in the sky, but that's about it. The headlines were as tough then as they are now. Jerusalem lay in ruins. The temple destroyed. Christians persecuted by the emperor Nero. False prophets running around claiming to be the Messiah. Everything was falling apart. And those who had believed in Jesus as the Messiah must have been wondering, have we been fooled? Surely this was not the way things were supposed to turn out. Surely God had intended a nonviolent renovation of his world. Not this chaos, not this darkness. In our own day, think skies filling with increasing CO2, the dark pall of the COVID pandemic, racial and political unrest, the assassination of a nuclear scientist in Iran just this past Friday. At the end of Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot, the two main characters, Estragon and Vladimir, give voice, I think, for our own time when they look at each other saying, do you think God sees us? Awash in the sea of nothingness? Lord, have mercy. Or in the words of the prophet Isaiah that we just heard read this morning, oh, that thou would rend the heavens, O Lord, and come down that we might see your face. This is when St. Mark tells the disciples and us the story again, writing it down so we would not forget how the face of God in Jesus himself had predicted it all, how he tried to tell them that they would not have a new world without letting go of the old one, which would have to crash and burn before anything new would come out of the ashes of a wooden cross. It was and is the good news of the end of the world, a piece of the gospel most of us would just as soon forget. But there it is. When the end comes, when it advents among us, it will not be because God is absent, but because God is very present. Having come in great power and glory to set aright what went awry at the fall of his creation. Behold, I make all things new. Write this, for these words are true, says Jesus in Revelation 21. 
And in the meantime, between Christ's first advent, his birth in Bethlehem, and his second coming again, ushering in God's kingdom, Jesus calls us not to watch out, but to watch, to stay alert, keeping our hand to the plow, of proclaiming his gospel and not falling asleep. A concluding story. Even though it was late and dark, she was doing anything but falling asleep. I was waiting to catch the last flight home from Seattle. The night sky over the Puget Sound was misty and cloudy as usual. The Northwest Airlines gate rather empty. And perhaps that's why she stood there like a candle in the night, exuding such warmth and hope. All three years of age and three foot nothing of her. Her nose was pressed tightly up against the glass window at the gate like this, her nose not leaving that piece of glass. She'd found a custodian's empty bucket and creatively set it up like a little control tower so she could better see deep out into the night. She stood there waiting with great intensity. Hi, my name's John, I said. What's yours? Refusing to leave her face from being pressed tightly up against the airport window, she answered, Jewy. Well, I think she said, Julie. Who are you watching for? Again, her mouth was tightly pressed up against the glass. My moomy. I said, your moomy? Mommy, I'm sure. Is she coming home soon, I asked. Well, with this guy constantly asking all kinds of dumb questions, she was getting a bit perturbed. But she nodded with a polite, yep. Well, how do you know she's coming? I asked hesitantly, didn't want to make her, you know, kick the bucket. With her face still pressed tightly against the glass, she quickly held out her hand and said, Mumi gave me this. It was a red lipstick, a sign for her little girl to hold on to till she returned. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance. And then this little Ms. Watchful for Mommy grabbed my hand and began to squeal with delight. She started jumping and down, up and down on that empty bucket, never mind any concerns for falling for the first time she now turned toward me, and I could see that there was red lipstick smooshed all over the glass and all over her mouth. She's here, she said. She's here. Pulling my face to the window, smooshed with this lipstick, the shape of her little heart, Julie pointed my eyes toward a blinking light in the sky as her mother's plane was slowly approaching. I stooped down to follow the trajectory of her pointing finger, and I wondered then if God wears red lipstick. Probably not. Too bad. However, God has placed something else even more precious in our hands, the splashing of water at baptism, the breaking of the bread, the wine in communion, the gift of the sharing of peace 
as we enfold one another as Christ's ongoing church, remembering the promise, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And it's because of this divine promise which we dare to say that God is a God of love and life, even when we see so much barbed wire of war and death around us. We affirm it in each other, waiting, watching, ready or not. Friends in Christ, the one who's coming in the clouds with great glory and power is not an enemy, but a friend. He may come in the night, midnight, five in the morning, but darkness will not stop him, nor should it us either. Our calling is not to lie in bed with pillows over our heads or shoving heavy furniture up against the door trying to keep the darkness out. Our calling is to light the candle wrapped in barbed wire and carry it, carry it as the priest of all believers from our baptism out into the world. Our calling is to watch for the one who comes to us with healing in his wings. Who knows when that will be? No one, of course, says Jesus. Take heed, says he. Watch for the light. For what he says, he says to all. Watch. Amen.